1: all to the glory of God. There is no thought, there is no feeling, there's no circumstance, there is no action, there is no word that is outside of the realm of being able to glorify God in the Christian's life.
2: Join us now for Grace to the Bay as we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ through sound expository teaching by our teacher Dr. Roger Chen. Grace to the Bay is the radio outreach of Grace Church of the Bay Area located in San Mateo If you are blessed by Dr. Chen's message and are looking for a church home, you're invited to come worship with them. Now, here is Dr. Chen.
1: We talk about godliness, trying to be like God, doing that which God is and defines for us in His character and in His Word. We reflect His existing glory back to Him, and that glorifies Him, doesn't add to what He needs to be glorious. People honor you this morning if you're a dad. They praise you. They thank you. They write nice things once a year about you on Facebook. That doesn't add to what they've written. They're writing that because you already are that. You already picked them up back when they remember falling off of the swing. You already provided. You already taught them. They're just reflecting back on this special Father's Day who you already are. It doesn't add to that. In fact, some of the things that they're praising you for are already done. You have grandkids. They're out of your home. You cannot, or probably will not, I should say, put a Band-Aid on their boo-boo. It's already done. In their minds, you are the complete father. It's the same idea here. We reflect back to him in our lives as much as possible, as best as we can, who he already is, but there's a problem. And that problem, as you know, is sin. So rather than reflect back his glory to him, we, like a broken mirror, refract it. You ever looked in a broken mirror? It doesn't give you a clear image of who you are. And in our pursuit of holiness, in our pursuit of sanctification, we more and more piece back together our lives so that they are the way God meant them to be. And then we become closer and closer to reflecting his glory in a more perfect way. Every step of sanctification which is spiritual growth every repentance and putting off of sin and putting on of christ we erase one of those cracks in the mirror and better reflect to god who he is in our lives so when paul calls us to do all things to the glory of god it is that pursuit of doing all things in a way that represents and reflects who god is who our god is and note that in this analogy the reflection of the sun for example does not make the sun any brighter or any more the sun S U N it is simply an acknowledgement and response of what the sun already is and that's what we do for the Lord. And when we get to this verse 1 Corinthians 10:31 this powerful infamous verse we need to pick out a few key points he starts with whether then you eat or drink. Remember, we're still in the context of Christian freedom, and specifically for the Corinthians, to whom Paul is writing directly, how that plays out in attending meals at a pagan temple. Then, as we saw last week, eating meat that may have been used in worship at a pagan temple, but at a friend's house or in your own home, or even purchasing it at a butcher shop. So on the heels of that, he mentions eat or drink. In other words, in light of preferring others, not offending a host, as we saw last week, but most not causing another Christian brother to stumble, choose to eat and drink in a way that glorifies God by doing all of those things. So in the context of last week, how do we glorify God or how would they glorify God and how they eat? Don't ask questions when you buy the meat. But if a weaker brother tells you it was sacrificed at the temple, then you don't eat it. Glorify God in that because you're preferring him. You're preferring the contents or you're making it a non-issue if there is no weaker brother present. That's the immediate context. But he goes on to broaden it as a general principle with the phrases, or whatever you do, and then he goes on and says, do all things to the glory of God. There is no area in your life, in other words, that should not be lived in a way that glorifies God. Every aspect. And then you go back and you attach that general principle to eat or drink, and you see it's not just the temple meat or potential temple meat. It is even the mundane things of life, like eating and drinking, do all to the glory of God. There is no thought. There is no feeling. There is no circumstance. There is no action. There is no word that is outside of the realm of being able to glorify God in the Christian's life. It does not matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It doesn't matter if you lost your job. It doesn't matter if you're scared of COVID, got COVID, don't think COVID is real. It doesn't matter if you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're rich. It doesn't matter if someone just died. It doesn't matter if you're about to die. You can do all things to the glory of God. It doesn't matter if you don't want to. It doesn't matter if you feel depressed. If you feel sad. If you feel elated, it doesn't matter. Well, my husband doesn't, well, my wife doesn't, well, my kids don't. You don't understand. Maybe I don't understand, but what I do understand is that in everything you can do all things to the glory of God. You may ask, Well, glorify God in my Christian life, but what about the areas of everyday life? What about my work? What about my commute? There is no difference. Or at least there shouldn't be. And that's where we hone in with uh, eat or drink. There is no such thing as mundane aspects of life that are distinct from that which can glorify God. It is all your Christian life. To say there is a difference between your normal life, your job commute and meals, and your Christian life, your worship, church attendance, Bible study, maybe your parenting, is like saying there's a difference between my normal life and the life I live when I am Asian. There's no difference. But even in that, some people compartmentalize that and say, oh, he means when he's actively engaged in cultural activities or promoting Asian American awareness like we would Christian evangelism. See? Compartmentalize. No. What I'm saying is that no matter what I do, I exist as an Asian man. I can't change that. In the same way, no matter what you do, you are a Christian and you are to do it as a Christian. You are to do all things always with a Christian mindset. What's the Christian mindset? It's in the scriptures. Out of love for God and love for others primarily. That's the starting point, foundation of everything. You cannot compartmentalize your life into Christian and non-Christian or Christian and mundane or normal or daily because even the simple acts of eating and drinking are to be done to the glory of God. I don't think many Christians seek out to compartmentalize our lives. We do it accidentally. Uh, We do it unconsciously. And so this serves as a warning because I think we'd all agree with that. Of course we don't compartmentalize our lives. I can't turn off my Christianity. But we do tend to do that when we go to work and turn on and say, now it's time to please the boss, not God. Oh yeah, when I'm ushering at church, I'm serving God and his people. But no, I got to serve my coworkers at work. There's an aspect of that. Submit to your boss, prefer other people, but you do that because you understand that God is your ultimate boss. Vacation. Yeah, I would never do this at home, but you know, I'm on vacation so I can indulge in the gray areas or even the sins that I would never do back home and the Anonymity. there's no way I'm going to run into anyone from church here, kind of feeds into that. That's compartmentalizing your life. You can be sad to the glory of God. Sadness is not sin. You can mourn to the glory of God. You can struggle and feel pain to the glory of God. Do all things to the glory of God. This inclusive term keeps us from compartmentalizing our lives to do all. How do we glorify God then? All of the above. Obedience, joy, thankfulness, worship. We could go on. And again, I want to remind you that when we talk about obedience, because that's the big one, right? Just obey. You understand that obeying is not just doing external actions, reading the Bible, do this, do this, do this. Okay, let me do this. Let me go to church. Let me encourage someone. Let me pray. That's not obedience unless you follow the biggest do this, which is have the right heart attitude. It starts with the heart. We're talking about glorifying God. We're talking about a ruling motive in the Christian life. There is no room for pursuing the glory of anyone or anything else. Not the glory of your company. Not the glory of yourself. Not the glory of your boss. Not the glory of your spouse. Not the glory of your children. And when it comes to understanding how to glorify God, perhaps putting it negatively will help. God is dishonored, which is the opposite of glorified, whenever anyone sins, but especially when His redeemed people sin. So don't sin. The opposite is also true. God is especially glorified when His people are faithful and obedient. This is what it means to glorify God, to do what He says, which includes doing it with the right heart. It starts with the right heart. And when you understand that, the heart, then it makes sense how you can glorify God, not just in going out to be a martyr for Christ on the mission field or those big spiritual acts that we think about or read about, but simply in how you eat, how you treat your spouse. How you work, how you fill out those forms at work, how you drive, how you vacation, how you sleep, how you stand in line at the DMV. Everything. How you shower, your hygiene, how you use the bathroom, how you brush your teeth. If you can glorify God in your perspective of how you eat and drink, then that means everything. Everything. That's the commanding principle. And everything else is based on this foundation, including our second final lesson on freedom and glory, the comprehensive practice. Look at verse 32, First Corinthians 10, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Again, we've seen this before in these three chapters. He's summarizing again. He's basically saying you are to give no offense to anyone. Don't offend anyone. And the idea here is to not cause anyone to stumble as it pertains to the gospel and their relationship with God. He'll clarify this in the next verse. We've seen this throughout chapters 8 through 10. Either as an unbeliever who needs to turn to God or a believer who needs to turn more to God which is all of us, all of us Christians. And we know from Paul's earlier teaching on this topic that we're talking about that which will help us to be salt and light. Though we are to take cues from cultural norms about what is polite, what is offensive and not offensive, we cannot let the world's morality dictate what we say and do. And this goes back to Paul saying, I am all things to all people, right? And we talked about then that says, look, if if I want to witness to Jews and, and they don't want me to eat pork, then I'm not going to eat pork in their presence. That's fine. Because it gives me an avenue for the gospel for them on their home turf, on their ground. So there's a cultural norm that we can accommodate for the sake of the gospel. But when it comes to sin issues and morality issues, we cannot. As we saw last week, we definitely need to prefer our non-Christian friend who's invited us for dinner. And don't ask any questions. Be polite. Eat what's served in front of you, regardless where you think it may have come from, regardless of it tasting horrible. But... When it comes to Christianity and other Christians, if weaker brother says, hey, this is from the temple, then you don't need it, even if that does mean offending the unbeliever. So back to this point, for example, in our culture, it is offensive to many to say that abortion is wrong. It's offensive to them because they take it personally. It has nothing to do with the baby. They take it personally as an attack against women. This is what our culture says. But that doesn't mean that for the sake of the gospel, we tell people we're okay with abortion because it's clearly a sin issue. It's a morality issue. This also doesn't mean that we, cannot hurt people's feelings. The gospel itself is offensive. And so you understand that we're talking about certain areas of cultural politeness that we can adhere to for the sake of the gospel. I think sometimes we get this more when we talk about missionaries. I don't think anyone is surprised when you start supporting a missionary from day one. They're still here in california and you start supporting them and they fly out and a year later you take them out to lunch when they're on furlough and said so what have you been doing this past year your first year on the mission field well i've just been doing language training i've been learning the culture i've been getting used to the food and anyone who understands missiology no one would say what you haven't been doing anything that's a lot because they're learning though they look different to be one of them for avenues for ministry and the gospel. I mean, even if you don't, you don't acknowledge it, I think we all do this when sharing the gospel. We're careful in what we say about peripheral non-gospel issues, non-issues, frankly. Well, what this is talking about is giving offense by keeping someone from hearing the truth. You can't avoid the truth in order to get them to hear the truth. You can't negate something God has said because you want to get to the gospel. That doesn't make sense. You need to be consistent with everything that the Bible says. So, you can't say abortion or homosexuality or premarital sex is okay because you say, well, I don't want to offend them because I know they've been living with their girlfriend for three years and I don't want to tell them that's wrong when they ask me because I want to get to the gospel. You can't do that because then you're lying. On a side note, what you can do in evangelism is acknowledge that it doesn't really matter to them because they're not believers. I got news for you. Non-Christians act like non-Christians. They will act like Christians after they become Christians. So yes, you need to be truthful. But don't harp on some lifestyle issue that you disagree with to the detriment of the gospel because and you never even get to the gospel because you get all political, you start arguing, you they attack you and so you attack back. And then you're just trying to squeeze them into some sort of legalistic morality. Get to the gospel. Back to our text, this goes back to what Paul said about himself in chapter 9. If you turn there with me, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, he says, For though I am, a, I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, he's free from the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Go back another page to 8.13. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. This is all big picture stuff for the greater goal of being willing to sacrifice personal desires and preferences for the sake of others and ultimately for the glory of God. And at the end of the verse, back in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul explains that this is to be done for everyone. He says, Jews, Greeks, the church of God. And this would cover all the people that were living in Corinth at the time. And if you take Greeks to the general idea of non-Jews, this covers all people everywhere in all time. You're either Jew or non-Jew and a believer or not. So we are to do nothing that will keep a Jew or a Greek from coming to Christ. And we are to do nothing that will keep a Christian from growing in Christ. Whatever that stumbling block is, for each individual or each people group will most likely be different for the Jew, for the Gentile, and definitely for the Christian. For example, and these are all from within the immediate context, but there could be more than this, especially in our day and age, but by example, for the Jew, Paul would do nothing that would make them doubt our monotheism or to show them that we would condone idolatry, such as eating at a temple feast. For the Greek, nothing that would cause them to blaspheme God. For the Christian, nothing that would cause a weaker brother to stumble. And as we saw to revert to their former life of idolatry. For us today, it can be anything that indicates a lack of personal worship and commitment to Christ. Not ch- taking church or sin seriously, for example. That actually would hinder someone from coming to Christ. Because what kind of example of what you want them to be as a Christian are you setting when you say, Yeah, I'll skip church to come have breakfast with you so I can evangelize you? That doesn't make any sense. It's inconsistent. Though they may disagree with you, they may, they may reject our Lord... We all dislike hypocrisy, Christian or not. Be consistent. It could be a, a personal offense. Anything from politics to sports to how you dress. Can I give you a personal illustration? I want to be very clear. This is just a personal illustration. This is not scripture. I'm not telling you to do this. State of California lifted the mask mandate. You no longer need to wear a mask if you have been vaccinated indoors, outdoors. It could vary from store to store based on their policies. Took a walk to my local grocery store. I was so excited to walk into Safeway for the first time in over a year without a mask on. I had a mask in my pocket because I wasn't sure if I'd go to other stores stores that would say I required a mask. And seeing 95% of the people in the store with a mask on, what did I do? I put my mask on. This was not out of a fear of man. If I could be totally honest with you to help you understand that I am student as well as teacher, I've been conv- I was convicted at that very moment by what we've been looking at in 1st Corinthians, and I don't want to be the guy who people say, "Look at that guy not being safe," and therefore hurt my opportunity for the gospel. And I'll be honest, I don't feel as strongly about COVID and masks as some of other people do. I understand that, but if I did, that's not a hell to die on for me. But if- If I'm going to make a point, I'm going to make it about the gospel, not about a political, even a medical issue for the gospel, for the gospel, because the goal is not my comfort, my view of COVID, my politics, or even these days, my feelings about racism against Asians which quite frankly wasn't very strong until my own mom told me she was afraid to go take a walk in the park because of what she's seeing in the news. Now I feel strongly about that, but you know what? That doesn't matter when it comes to the gospel. You think Paul didn't have feelings about what they were doing, what his former brethren, the Jews, were doing, what the Greeks were doing, what the Christians in Corinth were doing? He had a major problem with that, but he didn't make it an issue that would keep them from growing or repenting. It's about sacrificing, keeping quiet, Understanding what should be an issue, and frankly, there's only one thing that should be an issue, and that is the gospel, and that which are non-issues. Mass, race, yes, dare I say it, even the social view of justice is a non-issue in comparison with the gospel. With the gospel. The goal is God's glory through the progress of the gospel, not your peripheral feelings and views about anything else. The only view that matters is not a view, it's not an opinion, it is a fact, and that is you are a sinner destined for damnation unless you accept the gospel. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. You want to give, you want to participate, you want to do all these other things and these social issues, that's fine. But when it starts impeding on your Christian life, when you start compartmentalizing because you say, well, it seems like the pastor and most people in the church don't agree with this, so compartmentalize so I can do this, that's a problem because your focus is then not the gospel. And sometimes our focus isn't even on that issue, the focus is on why do I do this but other Christians don't and then it just, uh, it's just a huge mess. But if we all focused on the same thing, wouldn't that be wonderful? And I think about the last challenge you had at work, office politics. If, if all of your coworkers and managers and bosses and everyone there was all focused on the same thing, we all want her to get the promotion. Nobody else wants it. Nobody else is going to try it. Can you imagine that? Just focus on one thing. No fighting, no backstabbing, no secretly sliding your application under the door. If we're all focused on one thing, isn't that what... We're told about unity in the spirit, to focus on the gospel, focus on what we believe in Christ. And this must be done for all people. Let me give you a third final lesson on freedom and glory the conclusive purpose. Look at verse 33. Just as I also please all men in all things, and this is key here, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, he said this before, so that they may be saved. Now, of course, he's talking about unbelievers here now. Paul moves on to set himself up as an example again. We've already seen what he means to please all men from the text we looked at from chapter 9 earlier of course pleasing men must be taken in the context of evangelism and service to Christ he supports this behavior with the phrase not seeking my own profit but the profit of the many you know what this is This is a complete and utter disregard of his own interests for the sake of many, for the sake of others. Many being the greatest number possible, as many as possible. Not a select few, as many as possible. And this goes back to what I said in the beginning regarding big principles. There is no set or allowed limit in this phrase, this idea, this principle. And there's a reason for all this, the conclusive purpose, that they may be saved. Having a goal in mind does make sacrifice. Easier, doesn't it? Knowing there's an actual race with a medal for the winner makes the hardships of training worth it. Knowing there's a paycheck and subsequent food on the table and roof over your head make the difficulties of work worth it. And knowing there's God's glory and the progress of the gospel makes the pleasing of men worth it. Without this goal in mind, not only do you lack the proper motivation to please all men, but you will please all men in an unbiblical way. If your goal is just to make friends and to please men and not for the sake of the gospel, if you just stop at pleasing men or or your own reputation or whatever it is, you will do it unbiblically. There's a huge difference. That is, you will do it out of a fear of man or as a means for your own profit and advancement rather than out of a fear of God and a means for the advancement of God's glory. The problem here is that there's a lot of people. Unlimited, really. And if we were to try to picture that in our mind's eye, to scan the image of all that are considered our neighbor and include ourselves in that crowd of people, we do not see everyone equally because we see ourselves as much greater, more important. It's like going to the grocery store and you go to the strawberries. Strawberry season. I know this makes a lot of people happy. And they sell them by the basket usually, right? And you see these baskets. And you see basket of strawberries, $5 on and you notice that every basket, as they are prone to do, is filled pretty much the same, about half filled. But then you see one basket that is so full that the lid is popping off, and that one is equally five dollars it's hard after you have seen that to choose the other baskets that's how we see ourselves as more worth it more valuable than the other baskets but when we see ourselves as servants of christ made and saved to glorify the father then we have the right attitude and understanding of self so as not to seek our own advantage but that of others spiritual advantage and you say pastor that's hard you're selfish, I'm selfish, we're all selfish, we naturally think of ourselves as more important. But there's a good solution here. If you're still having a hard time viewing yourself in the proper light, if you still see yourself as the bigger and better basket of berries, then stop comparing yourself to others and compare yourself to Jesus Christ. That's our fourth and last final lesson on freedom and glory, the consecutive pattern. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Paul says, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. There's a Pattern here, and as helpful as it is to know that Paul, as a human sinner just like us, was able to do all things that he is calling us to do, the reality is that the pattern is not him. The pattern is Jesus Christ. The only reason Paul can humbly and confidently set himself up as an example to all of us is because he is imitating Jesus Christ. So what is the particular pattern that he sets before us? Well, as we have seen, first, to disassociate with anything that can cause a weaker brother to stumble. And secondly, giving up his own perceived rights and felt needs for the sake of a greater benefit to other people, Christian and non-Christian. Bigger picture, in what ways is he imitating Christ such that we should imitate him and thereby imitate Christ? Well, there's a few we've seen in Paul's life that are clearly in Christ's life as well. A willingness to suffer pain and even death for the sake of others. Having much, whether in heaven or within Judaism, but giving it up. Christ gave up what he had in heaven to come to earth. Paul was very well-known, successful, probably wealthy in Judaism. 2 Corinthians 8 talks about this, being poor, that others might become rich. It refers to that in Christ. And then Paul says that of himself and what we are all to do as well. He also modeled Christ for us in becoming a servant when he rightfully could have been a Lord. For Jesus, Lord of Lords. For Paul, a Lord or leader within Judaism. Yes, Paul is a great example, but only because he followed the greatest example. There's a lesson here for us. Immediately here, we don't just do what Paul does. We do what Paul does because it aligns with and adheres adheres to the example and commands of Jesus Christ.
2: This has been Grace to the Bay with Dr. Roger Chen. For the next part in this series, join us next week at this same time. Grace to the Bay is the radio ministry of Grace Church of the Bay Area, practicing and proclaiming the purity of biblical truth. You are invited to join them for worship services in San Mateo, Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit GraceBayArea.org for service times, directions, live streamed services, listen to archived sermons, or to make a tax-deductible donation to help keep Grace to the Bay on the air so that we can continue to share Pastor Roger's teaching with you each week. Again, that's GraceBayArea.org.